Good morning. Uh, it's about five after, and I understand I haven't been here for the last three weeks, so this is a new experience for me, not only from the fact that I'm here in class, but Gary's made me come behind the podium to this today, so uh, you're in for an experience. I won't tell you how bad it will be or how good it will be. You will be the judge. But uh, we're looking at John, and today we're looking at John chapter 3. And, and I think in order to understand John chapter 3, we have to go back to the Old Testament because there's a lot of things that are going on in the book of John that can be understood only by looking at uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. So I'm going to start in Ezekiel, and uh, we'll, look, we'll be looking at it first before we get into John chapter 3. Uh, before we get into our study, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Almighty God, we give you praise and glory for this day. Lord, we thank you for the moisture. We thank you for the snow. We realize, Lord, that uh, we have been deficit of that in this time, and we just give you the praise and glory for that. Lord, thank you for the glory that we see when we look at the peak and see snow on it. Father, we just give you praise for that. It just is a shadow of, of the glory that we will one day enjoy when we are in your presence. Lord, we thank you for this time to look into your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we do, that you will instruct us, that you will teach us, that your Holy Spirit will be among us, that as we come to this powerful chapter in the Bible, that you will help us to understand. We give you all praise. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 36 I'd like to read uh, a couple of passages there, Ezekiel 36. Uh, I'm going to begin with verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Now here it is. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Like I say, I think for us to understand John chapter 3, we need to have that in our minds. So what I want you to do is to think about that passage as we walk through John chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, now in John chapter 3, and I'm going to read uh, a few verses, going to begin with verse 1, just to kind of give us an idea of where we're going, and then we'll try to get into it. Now there was a man, wait a minute, I need to begin with John chapter 2, uh, verse 23, because in order to understand John chapter 3, 1, you got to go back to John chapter 2. 
No kidding. Uh, I, I'm not just trying to take you around uh, the Robin Hood barn. I really, there's a reason for all of this. Beginning with verse 23 of chapter 2. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Very important point. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. First verse, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God is not with him. The reason I wanted to go back to chapter 2 is because Jesus would not entrust himself to those individuals who had believed because of the signs, and yet at the same time, here is a man who says to Jesus, the reason I've come to you is because I know your signs, and he comes to him and wants to talk. Jesus entrusted himself to Nicodemus. Jesus did not entrust himself to the men who had believed because of the miraculous signs, because he knew their heart. What that says to me is that Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus. Now, whether or not Nicodemus was a completely pure in, his, in him coming to Jesus, that's a thought that you have to decide yourself. Was, was Nicodemus a person who truly knew who this man was because of the signs and had believed in him, or was he just there for his own agenda? Again, that's a decision that we have to make as we walk through this. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now remember the last part of John. We realize that the writer of John tells us that these signs were performed in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so here is one of the first instances of an individual who has come because of those miraculous signs. And we need to know at this particular point, is he there to believe or is he there for another agenda? In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now I'm going to take it that Nicodemus is old. Now what does old mean? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you the age. But the very fact that he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He is saying, how can I be born? Here I am, an old man, and you expect me to be born? How is that going to take place? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives 
birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus says, how can this be? Now, you don't have to agree with me, but I personally believe that at this particular point, Nicodemus is truly wanting to know, how can this be? How does this take place? And, Nicodem and Jesus has already given him an illustration, and that illustration is the wind. Now, let's go back just a little bit so that we can kind of follow ourselves up to, to truly understand where we're going. The first thing that we need to realize is that John wants us to know that this was a Pharisee. Now, most of us who have walked through the Bible from time to time and we have, are acquainted with the Bible, we realize that when we start talking about a Pharisee, we usually, the first word that comes to our mind is what? Hypocrite, thank you. Exactly, it is the idea that we think of him, any person when you think of the word Pharisee, the first thing that comes to your mind is a hypocrite. At this particular point, I want us to think about this man just for a moment, Nicodemus. Why would he come to Jesus and say the words, I know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do the things that you do. Who is Nicodemus? He's a teacher. He's a Pharisee. He has kept the law very meticulously in his life, and he will take the law and he will do everything that he possibly can. He has looked at the Mishnah. There's 24 chapters in the Mishnah on how you are to keep the Sabbath. Nicodemus knew every one of them. He had read those chapters. He was meticulous. And yes, he could have been a hypocrite, but also he was probably one of the better men in the, in the system at that particular time. The very fact that he would take the time to even come to Jesus, even at night. Now, Jesus did not criticize Nicodemus for coming at night. So Skip Clark is not going to do it either. In other words, I think that if Jesus could have said, well, now, why did you come at night? <laughs> that would have been something for me to talk about. But since he did not criticize him, I'm going to leave that to you, okay? Whether, whatever you want to do with that. I know that there's a lot of commentaries who talk about the, the, that darkness was not only the darkness of the night, but also the darkness of his soul. I have to disagree with that. I don't think it was. So, not only does he come to him, I need a drink of water, Wanda, please. Not only did he come to him at a particular time at this, to, to talk to him about this, but he also called him rabbi. The word rabbi is a very interesting word because it shows deep respect. For him to even address Jesus as rabbi, he is giving him the deep respect that he deserves because he knows him to be a teacher. 
and yet he himself is a teacher, and it's like we have something in common here, and I want to know more about who you are. I personally believe, and you can disagree, but I personally believe that Nicodemus was sincere in coming to Jesus. Now, he got some unexpected uh, address. He got some unexpected, uh, what do I want to say, thoughts that Jesus would give to him that he wasn't prepared for, especially with this idea about being born again. That was completely out of Nicodemus' mind at this particular point. Jesus was a teacher who had come from God, and that was in the mind of Nicodemus because that's exactly what he said. Now, there's a misunderstanding. As you look back at verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. Look at verse 10. No, verse 9. Thank you very much. He says, how can this be? Verse 9. In other words, he wants to know. He's, he's inquisitive about how this is going to take place. I've got cotton in my mouth, so wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry about that. How can this be? How can it be that I can be born again? The response that Jesus gives him is somewhat difficult to truly understand in the fact that he says, Jesus responds, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. The reason that I wanted you to read Ezekiel chapter 36 before we began is because Nicodemus should have known that 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 prophecy that's in Ezekiel chapter 36, that there's going to be a cleansing of water and the receiving of the Spirit, that he should have known at that particular time when Jesus was saying this, that that was going to take place. That this was the very, this was the end of that prophecy. That this new birth that Jesus was talking about is the end of that prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36. Anybody got a question or comment up to this particular point? Gary, I figured you'd have something to say at this point. Okay. Yes. To the Jews. No. Right. No, I think it's a, I think he's truly wanting to understand who Jesus is. This is a man Oh, yes, and that, and I would go a little bit farther that that's a very big possibility of why he came at night. In other words, he came at night in, in, in such a way that he would not be known from his peers 
of who, what, who, that he had come to the man Jesus. Good point. Yes, someone else. I believe so. That's one of the things that I think that that's why I say that he was sincere. Uh, I don't know if all of you heard that, but it was the idea that here, because of him being a person who looked at the law, that he truly saw that there was something else beyond that. And I think truly that was the case when we see that he came as a sincere man. Now, there, there are those who would disagree with me. Many commentators would disagree with me from the fact that most of them that I read would say that Jesus came, I mean, Nicodemus came with ultimate purposes. I mean, uh, alternative purposes. That's the word I want to use. Good point. Anybody else? So this new creation that he is talking about also parallels with some of the things that we see in our New Testament. In Titus, the, the Apostle Paul says, he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Christian baptism has a part in this saying that's found here in John chapter 3 that it is a cleansing of the water and the spirit. Anybody have a comment about that? So in order to get to the understanding, we've realized that at this point, uh, I, I, have to, I have a dilemma. And that dilemma is, is this in chapter three, only a message for Nicodemus or is this a, a looking or a shadow into our Christian baptism that we think of today? Of, like I said in Titus chapter 3. That he saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um, John was baptizing at this time, John the baptizer. And so Jesus himself had been baptized prior to this saying in John chapter 3. And of course we realized that he said, I, I want you to baptize me, John, so that I might fulfill all righteousness. This is what we're going to be doing, John. So there's an example that Jesus was making. And here I think that he's talking to Nicodemus that he also needs to experience this birth of repentance that takes place with John's baptism. Now we know that John's baptism was different than the baptism of, of the Christian baptism because it was a Christian baptism was the sign of a new beginning and this was more of a part of a repentance. So we, when we come to the New Testament and we come to the book of Romans, we hear these words, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
So there is a newness of life that the Christian baptism has, and that's why I said, this is my dilemma. Is it only for Nicodemus, or is this a foreshadowing of the Christian baptism that we know of today? Yes, Gary. What, what is uh, uh, difficult for me in this passage you're talking about? May have to repeat this. Can you guys hear me? No? Just turn around so they can hear you. Hi, guys. <laughs> so, my dilemma is what Skip is talking about. Jesus has been having this conversation maybe two years before Peter tells the folks at Pentecost when he says you've killed Jesus and he's God's son God raised him up they say what do we do and he says repent be baptized farther into your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so the gift of the Spirit is part of the Christian baptism but that is going on two years or so maybe three two and a half years after this conversation when Jesus is telling Nicodemus to be born of the water and the spirit and as far as we know John's baptism had nothing to do about the gift of the spirit that was coming so I agree with you I think he's foreshadowing it but it's difficult for me to see exactly what's going on here that may not have been worth me standing up about so I apologize well, I think we need to remember that uh, Nicodemus is still inquisitive, even at verse 10. Even after Jesus has kind of slapped his hand when he said, you, you're a teacher from God, and you don't know what I'm talking about, he still comes back and says in verse 9, how can this be? I, I still think of him being at this particular point, he's very inquisitive. He wants to know. And I think it comes from the fact that he realizes that there's something missing in his life. Yes, he is a very devout Jew. He has kept the law. He is a Pharisee. At the same time, there's a possibility, too, that when we notice in chapter 2 of the cleansing of the temple, guess who takes care of the temple? The San, uh, of the Sanhedrin, okay? And that, it's not the Pharisees, but it's the Sadducees. And the very fact that the Sadducees had been rebuked by Jesus in chapter 2, now in chapter 3, Nicodemus shows up and he's a part of the Pharisee body and he's going to see maybe if Jesus is on his side, oh, maybe I've got a partner here. We can take care of the Sadducees because of this prophet that's come on the scene. Again, that's, that's a possibility. So, uh, but I still think that he is a person who is saying, how can this be? You may know not how the Spirit works, but you can see the effect of it. That's the second idea. I mean, the first illustration that Jesus has given him is to look at the wind. Look at the wind and see you cannot know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You don't know that, but you see the effect of it. And that's what it is of one who is born 
of the water and the spirit. You don't know the, where, what the result of it. I mean, you don't understand it, but you see the result of it. We may not understand electricity, but we still have an idea of the benefit of its power. We may not understand the, the, uh, the engine in our car, but we understand that we can turn the key on and go. We see the effect of it, and I think that's what he's saying. You may not know how the spirit works, but we can see it in the lives of those individuals who have been born again. So, now we've come down to verse 9. Let's go just a little bit farther. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. At this particular point, he is trying to get him to look just a little bit deeper than he's ever looked before in his life. Nicodemus has never thought this way in, a, in this idea of going to a deeper understanding of the spiritual life. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, the very one that I is speaking to you is the one who has come from God. And you even recognize that in the very fact that that's the words that you said when you came into my very presence. Jesus is saying, so be, listen to my words. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. Then he goes on, just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes him may have eternal life. This is the second illustration that Jesus is using to try to get the point. First of all, he's looking at Ezekiel chapter 36, trying to show him that, that that's the point that you missed. Now he goes back to a very familiar story that Nicodemus has heard ever since he was a little child in Bible class. And at this particular point, he understands that as we go back there, what has happened in Numbers is that these people begin to grumble against Moses and against God. And God's fed up with their grumbling. And so what does he do? He sends a plague of snakes to bite the people, and some of them have died. And then God decides that what I'm going to do is tell Moses what he needs to do is to raise a bronze snake and anyone who looks upon that snake will be healed. Nicodemus knew that story just like any of our children in Bible class on Sunday morning who go back there time after time after time and they hear those wonderful people back there tell them the, their stories that they love Nicodemus heard that story over and over again. And Jesus is bringing that illustration to him and saying, this is the very thing I want you to know, that just as Moses took that snake, put it before the people, and who looked upon it, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that everyone believed. Now, Nicodemus will be the one who actually sees this take place. When Jesus hung on the cross, Nicodemus was there. 
How do I know that Nicodemus was there? I don't know specifically that he saw that particular thing happen, but I know that when Joseph of Arimathea went to get the permission to take the body of Jesus to bury him, who was there? Nicodemus. And what did he carry? 70 pounds of myrrh and alloy. 70 pounds of myrrh and alloy he brought to bring Jesus and to bury him in that particular way. And 70 pounds of myrrh is one of the things that's very expensive. So we know that he was a rich man. So what I'm saying is that at this particular point, this is going to become a reality in Nicodemus' heart in such a powerful way that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Do we know if Nicodemus ever believed? The scriptures never tell us. But it does tell us in chapter nine, uh, 7, excuse me, of John, that he stood up for Jesus. If you want to look at that just for a moment, let's turn to John chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading with verse 45. John chapter 7, verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who had asked them, why didn't you bring him in, bring Jesus in? No one ever spoke like this man, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? In other words, Nicodemus stood up for him stood up for the man that he went to see him at night. It doesn't tell us that he believed, but we can see the process of him coming to a deeper and deeper belief. In your own heart, hasn't that happened to you? It has to me. I'm 77 years old, and there's things that I believe at this particular point that when I was 20 and 30, I had absolutely no idea. I was walking with Jesus. I was wanting to be his disciple, but there was not anything as powerful as it is today. One instant that I'm talking about is that there's a scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 that has made an impact on my life in the last couple of years that never made an impact on me in my own, whole life. And that scripture says that I'm praying that God will empower you to do the things that your faith prompts you to do so that you may glorify the name of Jesus. I never knew about how that I am empowered by God to do the things that my faith prompts me to do. That was never part of my thinking at this point. And yet, at, at, in the last two or three years, this has become very powerful to me. And so what I'm saying that each one of us grow in our faith, and that's as Nicodemus as he's walking in this faith. Whether or not he ever believed, whether or not he was ever born of the water and the spirit, 
I do not know. But I know that there's a progression that helps me to say, yes, I think he did. Anybody want to respond to anything that I've said up to this particular point? Let's go a little farther. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God, of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. One of the most powerful statements and yet one of the most misused statements of all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's been, it's been taken away from the Christian world because what we see it is it become so common that there, there's a there's a, a flippant way of looking at that completely. And yet, it's one of the most wonderful statements that are made in all of the Bible in the sense that one who comes to believe in the Son of God has eternal life. And when we look at that, we see why it has such power. It doesn't have power until you read the verse 17. And that's where the power got. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There comes a point in every one of our lives when we realize that sin, we are sinful people. And that no matter how wonderful that we think we are when we go about doing the good things that we want to do, that we're still in sin. And at that particular point, we realize that there's not one who comes to condemn us but there's one who has come to save us. And as we look at that, we're looking at ourselves and we say, Skip, you're talking to a group of people who this is our whole life. How does that have any application to our life at all? We've, we've found our Savior. We know our Savior. And yet what we know is that one of the things that we've seen up, up to this particular chapter is that Jesus wants us to be witnesses to that. And so it is, it's just that it makes us even more so that we want to go just a little bit more deeper into sharing that gospel with others. Cotton mouth again. Bill, how would you take care of that? <laughs> I'm scared of you, I guess. Is that right? I don't want to comment one that comes to one of the... There is that fourth uh, illustration that Jesus makes. And, it's, and, and it begins with verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world 
and men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People, I know that feeling. Um, It's hard to stand before a group of people and admit there's sin in your life. But I would hope that every one of you would be willing to do the very same thing. Because no matter how we good we are and how want, how we want to be what God wants us to be, we find ourselves thinking the wrong thoughts, seeing the wrong things, and doing the wrong things. And as it says here, that we, our deeds, will be exposed. There's a fear that our deeds will be exposed. But there will be a time when all of that is exposed. And it's better to be in the light of God and see his saving faith that cleanses us of that by yielding our bodies, yielding ourselves to this wonderful idea of being born of the water and the spirit. People, that's a supernatural act. When that takes place in our life, one cannot try to explain it like I would explain a football game or a baseball game. It's not like I would explain how I would build a particular project in the wood shop. It's something that's supernatural. It goes beyond our imagination. And that's what happens when we are born of the water and the spirit. There's a radical change. And it's not something that we do of ourselves. We yield in obedience, but as we do, there's something that takes place that is miraculous. And it goes beyond our imagination. And it's willing, when it's, we are willing to expose ourselves and say to our, I am a sinner before God and I want my sins to be taken away. And thus I find myself being born of the water and the spirit. Then he goes on a little bit farther. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear they... Deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. All of a sudden, I have a new purpose. My purpose is the things that I do now because I'm born of the water and spirit, I do because of the power of God working in and through me. It's not something that I can take credit for. I yield myself to him to be able to allow myself to be used in his benefit. And all glory goes to him. And that's why all of a sudden that passage that I quoted just a while ago in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, that I pray that God will empower Skip Clark to do the things that my faith prompts me to do so that the name of Jesus will be glorified. And then it goes on to say, and that I will be glorified in him. Wow. 
And all of that comes back to this very statement that what hath, it may be plainly said that what he has done has been done through God. If I do anything good, hopefully people will say he did it not because his name is Skip Clark, he did it because his name is Christian. He does it because of Jesus Christ. How powerful that can be. After this, beginning with verse 22, after this Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Eon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of the John's disciples and certain Jews over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the, of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And to this John replied, a man can receive only what he's given him from heaven. I want to stop here. John is saying, I can do only what God has given me the gift to do. And I would hope that each one of us who are in this auditorium right now will be able to say that very same words. That as a Christian who is walking in the light, as he is the light, that we have fellowship one with another, that we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that I can only do what has been given to me from heaven. In other words, some of you have gifts that I don't have. I have gifts that you don't have. I don't have a gift like Gary, who is a master teacher. When Gary asked me to be a part of this John chapter 3, it scared me to death because I'm, I've got a master teacher to follow, you know? And so, no wonder I have cotton mouth. It, you see what I'm saying? He, we've all been given a gift. We've all been given a responsibility. We can only receive what God in heaven has given to us, and we can use it to his glory. Yes. Follow oh, Gary's example. I'll stand up. Okay. Uh, you're just saying, Skip, is uh, very important for us to know because we're under constant pressure as Christians to do more and do what others are doing. And yet, I think we all find there are only certain things that I can do. And that's what you're talking about. And don't worry about it. Do what you can do. And uh, enjoy. enjoy the gift. That's good. That's really good. Okay. Then he goes on to say, a man can receive only what he has been given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I've said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. In other words, he's saying, I'm not the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom awaits and listens to him, and he is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine, and it is now complete. 
He must become greater, and I must become less. Uh, where did it go? That book, that little book. I had it right here. Well, I guess it... <laughs> it's crazy. I read something that I think is something that really brings us home. It says it better than I could ever say it. It's a little book called Be Alive, and it's written by a man by the name of Warren Wiersbe. And this is a quote from him about what he said about being the bridegroom, not the bridegroom. Then John used a beautiful illustration. He compared Jesus to the bridegroom and himself only to the best man. Once the bridegroom and the bride has been brought together, the work of the best man was completed. What a foolish thing it would be for the best man to try to upstage the bridegroom and take his place. John's joy was to hear the voice of the bridegroom and know that he had claimed his bride. What, what Jesus is, what, uh, what John the baptizer is saying at this particular moment is that you need to realize that I've always said I am not the Christ and he must increase and I must decrease. And that's exactly what we all should say in our lives. That we are not the one who people ought to look at and say, oh wow, doesn't he have something? But rather, we ought to be the one that the glory and the honor always goes to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to stand before these people. I thank you, Lord, for the anxiety that I feel because I know that you're working through me in spite of that. I thank you for the words that you've allowed me to speak and I give you all the glory and all the praise. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that we'll look at the way that we too must be the witness, that we can share this good news with other people, that they must be born of the water and the spirit, or they cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. Lord, press upon us our job and our responsibility at the same time, Lord, help us always realize that you empower us, that you use us with our, our gifts and our mistakes. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.